Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this time in Ohio. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economics of the city of Berlin, where I am right now. We just recently had an election, so we thought this would be an opportune time to, yeah, to get into the peculiar economics of the German capital. But first, a data point more from the news, and that is 1.5, as in 1.5 degrees. That is the amount of temperature increase that the countries of the world have unanimously committed to maintain under the Paris Climate Agreement. The latest report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which came out last week, has now thrown that target into doubt. Humanity is on thin ice, and that ice is melting fast. What does the synthesis report tell us? Well, that we are very, very close to 1.5 degrees limit. One of the more alarming statements in the IPCC report is the following. Projected CO2 emissions from existing fossil fuel infrastructure without additional abatement would exceed the remaining carbon budget for 1.5 degrees. In plain English, that means that the likelihood of passing 1.5 degrees is now significantly over 50%. It may feel like we've said this before, but this really does seem like a, a pretty significant shift in terms of the official science. So we thought we'd delve into climate again. It's not the first time, but struck us as a good chance to talk about the economics of climate again. So Adam, as I said, the Paris Agreement commits countries to preventing global warming above 1.5 degrees. Have we in fact reached the point where that goal has become effectively impossible to meet for political reasons, if not economic or technical ones? And if so, why won't any of the parties to the Paris Agreement admit this failure? I mean, what's the point of maintaining policy goals that can't or won't be achieved? Yeah, it's a sobering conclusion, and it does seem increasingly implausible that we will come close even to meeting the requirements, you know, to give us a chance of stabilizing temperature increase at 1.5 degrees. On current policies, assuming no change, we're kind of in the upper range of 2.5 to 3 degrees, which is short of catastrophe, which is where we were at in the so-called business as usual scenarios that were touted a couple of years ago. That took us, those took us to four to five degrees that they tended to project absolutely enormous increases in consumption along the lines of China in the early 2000s. 2.5 to 3 is nevertheless, you know, very disastrous. If we assume some further adjustments in light of you know the constant campaigning and the evident concern over hitting that much higher degree of change, you know, 2.5 to 2 might still be plausible. To get to 1.5 now would require essentially an immediate, as in literally today, this week, reorientation of practically every aspect of our lives at this point. We would need to, you know, carry out a crash transformation in energy systems, housing, transportation, food, industry. And given the fact that the alternative technologies, you know, are not available um, in any kind of reasonable form, I can't jump in a high-speed railway to take me from, you know, Cleveland or Columbus, Ohio, to back to New York. Nothing suggests that we're moving, you know, in that kind of urgent direction with the kind of speed that's necessary. 
so we're not we're not we're not on target for 1.5 we'll be lucky if we get to 2 we're headed towards 3 but you know the the difference between 2 and 3 is is all the difference and that's what we need to fight for so why why don't we adjust targets i think it's we don't because it's hard to abandon uh, the 1.5 goal because it means admitting that a better future is essentially slipping from our grasp and we're allowing it to slip from our grasp. In fact, we're doing things that are making it impossible for us to attain right now, right here, right now. And for certain parts of the world, notably small island communities uh, and for places like Bangladesh that are very exposed to flooding and extreme weather, we're effectively, if not announcing their death warrant, then the implication of not hitting 1.5 is, is catastrophic for them, or at least potentially catastrophic for them. And and th- those were the politics of the 1.5 target. So in the Paris negotiations, the most vulnerable countries insisted that you know we couldn't possibly sign up to a treaty, which essentially committed us to exposing them to the risk of destruction. And 1.5 was the only kind of treaty that gave them, you know, a, a good chance of avoiding that. And and so conceding that we're now in a world in which that is no longer a likely outcome, and that we're headed towards one with perhaps not totally catastrophic apocalyptic change but but with very dramatic and very dangerous changes is is almost impossible politically to stomach so of course various countries around the world are pursuing climate policies even if they're not ambitious enough among them of course are the united states and uh, the countries of europe in the european union I wanted to ask, what are the distinctions between how the U.S. and the EU are pursuing climate policy? And do these distinctions end up adding up to a significant substantive difference? Yeah, I mean, this is a question we can now ask because America is pursuing climate policy with the Inflation Reduction Act under the Biden administration, whereas, of course, until 2020 under Trump, climate change was you know, not a topic that could be discussed within the federal bureaucracy. And that is the even now, the fundamental difference in political terms between Europe and the US, which is that in Europe, climate policy goes by the title of climate policy, because in European politics, the climate issue is, is not, if not entirely consensual, then there are very few serious skeptics that matter in the European political system. Whereas the US, in introducing the biggest climate policy that it has ever attempted, indeed, arguably the largest single subsidy package ever offered anywhere, avoided any mention of climate as far as possible and called it the Inflation Reduction Act. Hmm. Um, And so that's, as it were, to start with the big difference. The other fundamental difference is that the Inflation Reduction Act is a package of subsidies, whereas the Europeans have a wider range of different types of policy open to them. They too have subsidy. Uh, They like to say now that they've been overtaken by the Americans and they need to urgently act. But if you look across the entire spectrum of inducements available in Europe, there are very considerable inducements available, EVs, for instance, um, and for renewable and green energy through, say, contracts for difference in the energy generating system, which are are contracts which provide subsidies to people who provide green energy to the European economy. The, The big difference is that the Europeans also have sticks, so not just carrots, but sticks as well. And in a sense, they were they were the people that drank the, the neoliberal Kool-Aid of the 1990s. It was in America that models of carbon pricing were first espoused in the late 80s and early 1990s. They were vigorously pushed by the first Bush administration and then by American um, lobbies, NGOs, and climate economic experts that 
went out around the world preaching the, the gospel of, of carbon pricing and the Europeans actually started doing it and in, in the early 2000s introduced a carbon pricing system. For a long time, that was a joke, but now it's begun to bite. So the price for a ton of carbon you know, has peaked over 100 euros a ton, which is the sort of price that we need for it to really begin to make a big difference to the economics of energy generation. In the US, both the Clinton and Obama administrations tried to introduce carbon pricing and failed. And so the Biden team never even attempted it. But for all of the differences in politics, it will really, I think, see over the next 10 to 20 years as things like carbon pricing begin to bite and the push for renewable energy in the electricity system and the transition to EVs really begins to gather pace, how far these political, cultural, social differences b- between Europe and the United States will really play out in the reality of the energy transition. So given the temperature increases that are already baked in, I guess no pun intended there, but we're already at 1.1 degrees of global warming. And yeah, as we've said, we're on pace to uh, pass 1.5 degrees in the next several years. So given all that, should we be deferring at least some of the money or some of the public attention, at least, away from climate mitigation policies, that is, you know, policies to reduce carbon emissions, and towards instead climate adaptation, so policy to adapt to this newly warmed world. Yes, in a word, and it's become a major subject of discussion in the Global Climate Conference Circus, which is known as COP. So COP, by the way, stands for Conference of the Parties. And the parties are the parties to the UN climate treaties that were signed in the early 1990s. And we're now in, you know, we're, we're heading towards COP28. We just had COP27 in, in Egypt. COP26 was the one in Glasgow. And as the years have gone by, the conversation there has shifted um, the emphasis away from mitigation towards adaptation. At COP, there were three buckets under which climate policy is discussed. So mitigation is one. And and clearly there, the push and the, the emphasis is on rich, large countries with very substantial emissions well above the global average, trying to reduce them and invest in reducing. This is the mitigation side so as to address the source of the problem. For a while in the 1990s, when this process started, the conversation was all about Europe, United States, Japan, so the G7 countries. But as China and India have developed, of course, mitigation is also something that concerns them. But if you're a country in harm's way, like a Bangladesh, for instance, or a Caribbean island state like Barbados or the Bahamas, you know at this point that the big polluters are unlikely to do enough to make you safe. So at this point, you need to start adapting. And that takes money, that takes resource, that takes attention, and it can make a huge difference. Uh, and Bangladesh is really the standout example of this. I mean, it's a huge country, populous, 170 million people, very, very exposed to typhoons and flooding. And those are lethal. So Cyclone Bola um, in 1970, which swept out of the Bay of Bengal, um, is thought to have killed somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people. So a mega, mega disaster. But since then, Bangladesh, with the aid of international organizations, has become a leader in weather forecasting, um, early early warning, and um, shelter building, so that we're now talking about fatality rates, um, which are a fraction of what they were in the early 1970s, you know, up to about 100 times less. 
There's a third bucket, which is also up for discussion at the COPs, and this is where things get really grim because this is loss and damage. So this is reparations for countries or emergency aid for countries which have suffered the disastrous consequences of climate change. And as we head deeper and deeper into this two to three degree world, which now seems the most probable trajectory for us to be on, that element is going to become more and more important. At COP27 in Egypt, there was a breakthrough in that the rich countries, notably the United States, finally gave up their dogged resistance to even talking about loss and damages. There's now a fund that's going to be created. Everything's still to play for because the funding of that pot of money, the governance, its allocation um, is all entirely up for grabs. But it's significant that, as you say, we have moved from mitigation to adaptation and now to a conversation about loss and damages because we're going to have to face this reality. Of course, all this green finance is coming in our new era of higher interest rates. So yeah, how does this new higher interest rate setting relate to climate policy? I think it's an interesting question and it's tempting to think that it's sort of left field. You know, we're talking about the fate of the planet and then well, what about higher interest rates? But I think we have to think in those terms because when we discuss climate change, we rather easily fall into a kind of siloed view that thinks of it as a separate domain of policy that you know that will have to be resolved over a 20, 30 year time horizon, which, which then ends up separating it from the urgency of the particular moment. And in fact, of course, we need to think both at the same time, right? Because the the energy transition and the adaptation and mitigation and relief efforts with regard to climate are going to be not just you know expensive in general but particularly capital intensive this is one of the things about renewable energy if you think about solar panels it's kind of intuitive like once you buy the things you just put them out in a field on racks basically and with a very little bit of maintenance they essentially for free generate electricity when the when the sun is out so all of the cost really is in installing them so they're what's called capital intensive and so they're sensitive to interest rates going up and that is something that we need to think about in particular in how a high interest rate world will make it particularly hard to fund this capital intensive energy transition so finally i wanted to take a step back here When it comes to the most ambitious climate policies that are necessary to stop climate change at a reasonable level to prevent the most catastrophic effects from occurring, what exactly is the structure of the political challenge here? I mean, is this an instance of elites that are blocking progress on climate policy, or is it rather the public that is blocking progress on what elites broadly speaking, agree needs to be done here? I think it's probably useful to operate here with a a three-sector model, so not just elites versus the public, but I think two different elites contending. So there's a mobilized climate-concerned group, shall we say, mixture of managers, scientists, experts, government officials, and just regular citizens. In fact, opinion polls show that there's very broad-based concern for the climate, but it skews towards those with college education and those who are younger, unsurprisingly. So that's, as it were, one camp. And seeing that challenge coming, you know, this essentially a kind of cultural, socio-economic, political revolution, there is a reactionary conservative group defending the status quo, a second group, I don't know whether we can really call them elite, but in any case, a kind of vested interest, who are climate antagonists, if you like, on either on grounds of 
you know, the culture wars, they regard this as some sort of liberal, you know, wokery that they have to resist on all, you know, in, in fundamental uh, value terms, or more importantly, because their interests are threatened, you know, so Exxon is the standout example of a, you know, a diehard fossil fuel business that, that for a long time supported quite cynically and sponsored quite cynically uh, climate skeptics. So there's a flat out battle between those two groups at every level, I think, popular, elite, political, in lobbying, in the media. And then there's a third group, which is probably a majority of society who will say in opinion polls that they're interested in the climate and concerned about it. Solid majorities practically everywhere in the world do, but they will also say that they don't want to pay anything to do anything about it. So this group is inconsistent. It's not very mobilized one way or the other. You can either legislate past them and just hope they don't notice and mobilize against you, or you can craft policies that sway them one way or another by essentially just offering all carrots and no sticks, which is something like what the Inflation Reduction Act does. It doesn't require you to sign up to any kind of commitment. It just tempts you by way of a tax write off for a particular type of car that you can buy um, if it meets certain criteria. And the green hope right now, I think, has moved beyond a policy of trying to win gigantic political majorities for the cause. And is instead really about trying to devise technological, economic, industrial solutions that mean that the mobilized green, for want of a better word, this elite lobby, right, can sway a substantial slice of this relatively indifferent, but but climate curious and kind of benign majority towards towards their side. And that's de facto, I think, where everyone in the world right now is. So that can take a totally depoliticized form in the case of an American utility in a state like Texas that simply offers you cheaper power from a windmill or from solar. In, in Europe, we're talking about you know much more comprehensive, culturally laden kind of visions of a greener Europe. And in India, it's all just really about you know who can offer you the cheapest power as quickly as possible so as to raise energy consumption um, all three of those are ways of getting towards the energy transition, but with very different politics in each case. All of them, however, ultimately reliant on mobilizing a coalition of you know, active political support, technological solutions, and then you know, majorities of consumers and voters that will shift towards these technologies because they're simply cheaper and, and uh, better. Got it. I should add that some of these democratic tensions were obvious this past week in Berlin, we just had a public referendum that would have mandated the city become carbon neutral by 2030. The referendum was unsuccessful. Um, people did not vote for it when they seemingly realized that uh, just how much it would cost and just how much sort of sacrifice would be demanded of them. But that is an opportunity to take a break here because we will come back to actually dive some more into the economics of Berlin. Hi, and welcome back. Our next data point is 27, as in 27%, which is the rate at which rents for apartments in Berlin have increased just in the last three months. That makes Berlin now the second most expensive city in Germany to rent an apartment which is a dramatic change for Berlin over the past 15 years. 15 years ago, Berlin was one of the cheapest major cities to live in around the world, not just in Germany. 
But yeah, this change uh, in Berlin rents may help explain why the city just elected a few weeks ago a new mayor, removing from office a left-wing coalition of social democrats and greens and outright socialists in the left party, and electing instead a mayor from the conservative Christian Democrats. So the new mayor, Kai Wegener, who will take office most likely in a month, nobody denies that he's a, a local Berliner, but he does contradict some of the freewheeling anarchic reputation that the city has earned abroad. Wegener is someone who once aspired to a career as a pilot in the Air Force, and he instead ended up uh, as an insurance salesman. So from socialists to insurance salesmen is the story that Berlin is now going through. And he's taking office after a campaign in which he really placed a big emphasis on law and order, making the city work, as he put it. So we wanted to dig in to what exactly makes this city work or not work, as it were. Just a note here, if you are in Berlin or are interested in Berlin, Adam and I may probably be doing a live recording in Berlin uh, in, in May at some point. So we'll give more details about that later, but just keep that in mind for future updates about that live recording. So, Adam, a recent former mayor of Berlin famously said something that's become a cliche. He said that Berlin was poor but sexy. So how did Berlin's history, its kind of unique history in the 20th century, affect that economic identity? And is Berlin still poor today? Yeah, so this is this uh, famous, hilarious quote from Klaus Boverite, who is the first openly gay mayor of uh, the city for the SPD from 2001 to 2014. And um, yeah, he summarized, I think, the sort of atmosphere and mood of the city, not in the immediate aftermath of the falling of the wall, but in its sort of salad days in the early early 2000s. Berlin really is a distinctive capital city. It's quite different than, say, Britain or France or even Spain, if you think about the way in which economic geography has worked, works in these European countries. I mean, Germany you know, was made up out of a patchwork of independent states over the course of the 19th century, finally unifying in 1871. And this means that Germany has always had multiple centers of administration, multiple centers of economics, of commerce, of trade. And also, you know, as in everywhere, its economic geography is dictated by geology. So the centers of heavy industry in Germany have been in the east, in Silesia, what is now Poland, and in the west, in the Ruhr, uh, the industrial zone around the border to Belgium and the Netherlands, where there is a huge coal seam that's fundamental. You have in Hamburg, the great you know, port city open to the world. You have Cologne, the great Rhine port city that, you know, funnels German trade and finance towards the Netherlands and the North Sea. Uh, then in the modern era, you have Frankfurt, which rivals Paris and London as a financial center. And in really the period since World War II, Munich as Bavaria's capital has emerged as a, as a hub of real wealth. And Berlin is sort of, has always sat somewhat uncomfortably with this constellation. In the period you know, in the in the 18th century, it was notorious as a bit of a sandpit, right? And in the, the local terrain is pretty unprepossessing. Prussia was a relatively poor state. It focused on militarism. Berlin acquires the the, the classical, you know, monumental buildings of government and, uh, and, and of religion in the early 19th century in the so-called reform period. It's really from 1870 onwards, 1871, with national unification, that it becomes an absolutely indispensable and industrial economic hub. It's a little bit more like, and this may sound like a weird comparison, but like Chicago in a sense, right? As a city that really explodes to global, national, certainly economic significance in the late 19th century, it even has an elevated 
subway line. Berlin's peak population was reached in the 1940s at 4.5 million, which even then was about half the size of London and Paris at their maximum size. So it's never been a metropolis on the sale of a true megacity. It's sprawling. So, you know, Berlin, if you know it, is flat and then it's dispersed over a wide territory, but it's never been terribly densely populated. And its population today is about a million less than that. So it manages to have these housing issues despite having a smaller population than it did in the 1940s. Of course, during World War II, it was very badly damaged and then it's divided during the Cold War and the West Western bit of Berlin becomes an island which is kept alive economically by subsidies. East Berlin is the hub of the East German economy. But then when the communist economy collapses in 89, um, it goes into really quite massive crisis. You then have the movement of the political center of Germany to Berlin, which adds jobs and an office space. But the economic crisis of East Germany spills over to Berlin itself. Um, and it's you know very overshadowed since the 1990s by the rapid growth in Poland, which we talked about a couple of, a couple of episodes ago. Until about five years ago, it was literally the case that Berlin was so much poorer than the rest of Germany, that if you took Berlin out of the German economy, the average GDP per capita of Germany would increase. Yeah, this turn in the city's fortunes seemed to start occurring around the time of the Euro crisis, which was around 2010, 2011. Is that a coincidence? Or if not, what exactly is the connection there? I kind of searched for a direct link to the Eurozone crisis. I, I couldn't, I mean, it did happen then. I, I find it, you know, hard to find very direct links between the Berlin's local situation and the, you know, the misery that struck large parts of the rest of Europe at that time. That would seem also a little. Cynical. I mean, people make the case that Germany profited from from the eurozone crisis, and it did to an extent through lower interest rates. I think you'd be pretty hard to nail that on, pin that on on Berlin. But certainly, cumulatively, growth begins to build up. Um, you know, the period after two thousand and eight is sort of the period of tech enthusiasm in Germany. You kind of founders, uh, venture capital begins to move there. You have a major tech scene. There's a lot of in migration of young talented, creative people from all around the world, not particularly popular in Berlin itself, but nevertheless good for the local economy. Um, but we're nevertheless talking about a slow recovery from a really severe situation. I mean, when Klaus Wovereit, you know, made that 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 quip that, you know, Berlin was poor um, but sexy, Berlin had an unemployment rate up around 18.5%. So really very severe unemployment. And still today, official Hmm. Measured unemployment in the city is over 8%, which is hmm. more than twice what it would be in the more prosperous parts of southern Germany. So there has been growth, cumulative growth, accelerating growth to an extent in Berlin, certainly now pushing it slightly above the national average. Um, but this is no boomtown. This isn't, you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be comparing this with, you know, London or New York before the 2008 financial crisis or let alone Silicon Valley or you know, one of the boom towns of China. We're we're talking a very much more moderate pace. It comes as a considerable shock to Berliners, in part for, for for so many years. It was a genuinely sleepy place from an economic point of view. Yeah, I'd like to talk a bit more about what the analogs for Berlin might be, because obviously these days it isn't a center of leading industries the way, say, New York or London or Paris would be, but. It's also something more than a merely political capital, like, say, I don't know, Washington comes to mind or other kinds of artificial political capitals like Brasilia or, you know, these kind of new cities that are designed as capitals. So what cities do come to mind? You mentioned Chicago, but that seemed to be more an analog with the kind of late 19th century industrial period. 
So yeah, what does come to mind these days as being comparable with Berlin in terms of the structure of its economy? Yeah, it's really, I was straining here a little bit. I mean, I thought maybe Rome, because that, you know, the, the, the sort of economic hub of Italy is, you know, generally one would say Milan rather than Rome. But if you look at the GDP numbers, the Rome is comfortably above the national average, I, I believe. And so that, that, that is rather different trajectory. I once mm. tempted to say something truly scandalous like Naples. Oh, um, but I mean, oh. you know, that's, uh, that's far too flattering to Berlin's architecture. And, and, you know, and on the other hand, doesn't perhaps do justice to the, you know, the efficiency and functionality of the city. It is after all, I mean, both you and I love it. I, I, I spent large parts of my younger years living in Berlin. It's a, it's an, it's a fantastically in many ways, easy and, and comfortable place to live and, and has been. And, Naples is a much more complicated kettle of fish. And then I started thinking, well, is it like Spain? Like, after all, like Madrid has a rival in Barcelona as an economic hub, but Madrid is a city of considerable wealth, right? I mean, that's where national mm. money goes. So in a sense, maybe you get down to this question of what it means for a city to suffer a really very fundamental break in its historical meaning, right? And that, I think, is really what defines Berlin as very special. It was a, mm. a city that was at the hub of a national project that broke and even in its reconstituted form in the 1990s is not what it once was. And in the meantime, other places have very, very successfully established themselves as rivals. I mean, I recently spent time in Hong Kong. I was beginning to think, is it a little bit like Hong Kong, which you know was once the hub of free market economics on the, on the boundary to China and has now been very fundamentally overtaken by you know, the Pearl River Delta region as a whole and by Shanghai as a, as a financial center and, you know, risks being overtaken by Singapore as well. I think it's, I mean, it's unique in that sense, Berlin, right? Yeah, that sounds right, that Berlin then is is a unique place. And, and that was always, I guess, my sense when I first came here as well, that the sort of what made it unique was precisely that the kind of failures of the past were so foregrounded, like they were evident everywhere. It was sort of like it was not hiding from its previous failures. But yeah, now it is becoming more self-aware of its power. I mean, as a political capital, but yeah, just generally the spirit of kind of like progress and <laughs> all of this is kind of more in the air. I think 15 years ago or 20 years ago when I was first here, there was a kind of real ethic of like not wanting to be successful. Like they didn't want yeah. the city. Like it was there was an ethic against success here. It's what the Chinese um, would call lying lying flat, right? There was this sort of um, yeah, a kind of opting out almost of the rat race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to turn back to the present, as I said at the top, the big topic that most people talk about and that really informed this election campaign is the lack of affordable housing these days. I mean, a lot of cities, obviously, around the world have this problem, but it was so dramatically different in Berlin not so long ago. So, yeah, how did Berlin's housing market change so dramatically so quickly? Yeah, I mean, it. I think Berlin right now is in a state of crisis because we're really, as it were, between regimes. The, the previous administration in Berlin wanted to introduce a binding you know, upper limit to rents in the city across the entire housing market. And this was struck down by the German uh, courts. And so now I think Berlin is in a kind of rather messy and, and frankly unsustainable, unsustainable situation. Um, it, there was also a referendum in 2021, which, you know, was driven very much from the left, uh, achieved a stonking great majority amongst the people who turned out to vote for it for the expropriation the taking into public ownership of one of the pro largest private uh, owners of, of, of apartments in Berlin, 
uh, would have cost, by most people's calculations, I think several tens of billions of euros and would have brought a substantial slice of the housing stock under public control. That referendum passed, but then there was no action on it. And now we're going to have a Conservative-led administration, which is clearly not going to follow through. And in the meantime, of course, Berlin becomes quite an unattractive place for private investors to put money and build new accommodation. I think what we can say is that you know, neither the market model um, is working in Berlin, nor nor a tightly, you know, functional and t- well-designed public sector model. And, and I think in, it'll be interesting to track over the coming years how this plays out. The sort of rent increases that you were talking about at the opening are clearly unsustainable. The fundamental problem, I think, in Berlin is that you still have very large populations of people who are poor. You know, if you have a city with an unemployment rate over 8%, you know that there are substantial numbers of people who can't afford um, rising market rents. If you, if you, you know, you're in a city with very substantial disparities in income between the um, between the eastern and, and uh, western parts of the city. Still, um, both of them, you know, if you look after after tax, you know, the the, the median net salary of somebody living in in West Berlin is like two thousand two hundred euros, and in East Berlin, it's down around one thousand eight hundred euros. So you can't sustain you know, London or New York rental prices on those kind of um, net after-tax incomes, right? People just simply don't have the wherewithal to afford them. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, what's undeniable is that this adjustment leads to a lot of anger in, in the adjustment itself. And yeah, partly it's because things were so different not long ago. People had very, sort of one of the, um, one of the terms that, that's used regularly here is uh, there's almost a currency that's referred to as an alter Mietvertrag. When you hear someone who has an alter Mietvertrag, this is an old rental contract, which is a sort of reference to like 2010 when you say old. <laughs> like the, the people are living in these enormous apartments where the rent is still extremely cheap. I mean, really, like enormous palatial kind of apartments where they're paying next to nothing because that was what the market was just, you know, 10, yeah. 15 years so, ago. So, I mean, it's worth saying that tenants in Germany enjoy much greater security. 85% of the population lives as tenants in Berlin because if you do get one of these contracts, you are you enjoy a remarkable level of protection. You can pass it on, in fact, to a, mm. a, subsequent, a subsequent renter um, it's far more stable in that sense than you know anything one's used to say from the London rental market or large parts of the private rental market in New York, uh, where you know your lease can, can you know is up after a year or two years and, and rents can change quite dramatically. So there is also a, a struggle here of insiders and outsiders as those who are mm. within the system enjoy relatively protected status. It's people of modest and low income that either are for one way or another catapulted out of that system of protection or have to or attempting to to move to the city that I think are in real are in real difficulty. So finally, I guess I wanted to ask about what's been revealed about Berlin by this election. I mean, obviously Berlin has earned to some extent this reputation as a freewheeling leftist city. A lot of people come here for that freedom and even the nightlife. But it just uh, elected this very rather conservative mayor. So what is been revealed about the city and its composition by this election? I mean, one thing is the geography of the city, which is sprawling. And so in the centre of Berlin, the bit that tourists will see when they visit, it is indeed a very liberal, left-leaning, green city where you have you know huge belts of Green Party voting in most of the nicer parts of West Berlin. Then you have a little bit of social democratic sort of bastions in formerly working class areas. And you even in the east have a couple of constituencies which go to Die Linke, the far left inheritor party of the you know, Communist Party now massively changed. 
But around them, this election has revealed this huge belt of, of, of black. So that in the German party color system, black means clerical, in other words, Christian democratic, center, center right conservative. And in the Far East, there are even a couple of constituencies which vote AFD. And there's been a 10% shift, essentially. This isn't, no, this is a, this is a European style, German style electoral system. So a 10% shift, which took the CDU from 18% of the election to 28% of the election is a, is a seismic earthquake and has shifted the balance of power at the centre. I mean, the issues that drove this were, in part, general, I think a general sense that the, you know, Berlin's administration could be tidied up. I mean, they had to have this election because the last election was struck down as unconstitutional because the voting booth didn't work. I mean, this is quite astonishing. They had electoral observers at this, you know, at this election to confirm that it was free and fair. I mean, it's kind of bonkers in, in you know, Europe's capital. This is also, of course, the city administration that couldn't build a, you know, an international airport for love and money. Like it's, so there was that sense of just sort of chaos. There was quite a lot of stuff around rents and the sense that the effort to push through a kind of rent control policy had failed and was a shambles and we needed to move on. There was, a, there was an issue also around transport. You know, green policies are very important for the parties at the hub of the centre of Berlin who were pushing for pedestrianisation and so on. They're very unpopular with a commuter belt around the side, which is addicted to its cars and and um, I know he's very hostile to this kind of thing. But the the dark side of this election, which we really have to talk about, is the race issue um, or the issue of public order, which is tied up with race in Germany. And, you know, Germany, we've, we've actually did an episode of many, many, many episodes back now on, you know, sort of protest in Berlin, which centered that episode was all about May. But but Berlin, if you have been there at New Year, also has this riotous celebration of New Year with fireworks being fired as much laterally across streets at each other as vertically into the sky. And this year, the, the fireworks were completely out of control and, and groups of kids, young people began to attack the fire service and the police that were sent to sort of restore order. And, and Berlin is a very multi-ethnic city. And the question of politics in the day was, uh, since January, has been, who were the perpetrators of this rioting? And the the CDU has moved, lurched very much to the right in the sense that the the Wegner, the the candidate for the CDU, demanded the publication of the names of the people arrested by the Berlin police, with the view, of course, exposing the fact that they had they had Arab names. And um, Meatz, the uh, the leader of the CDU nationally, um, piled in on this with this 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 disgusting um, TV comment that he made about um, young pashas. So this, this, this sort of, you know, slur, essentially, that, you know, Arab kids in German society, especially young boys, you know, disrespect their school teachers, who Merz imagined, of course, as upstanding German women, who are disrespected by, by these Arab kids. And that's what then spills over into the streets where you have, you know, fine German policemen and fire service people being attacked by, by mobs of, of firework shooting migrants. Now, the sociology of Berlin is complex, and it may very well be indeed from experience. I know that the fireworks are very, very intense in the Turkish neighbourhoods. There's a story there, that, but what the CDU was doing is cynically exploiting this, obviously, to just essentially play the race card. And what's really alarming is that the national CDU, CDU was doing this, because the question that haunts German politics now is like, where... Where does the CDU in opposition go? Angela Merkel's party, Angela Merkel stirred the party to the middle and in a sense then lost the tritted votes to the right. 
Um, and she steered the party to the middle on migration, on on gender relations, on, on gay marriage, and on economics. And and the question now is, what does the party in opposition do? And the breakthrough in Berlin is is worrying because it seems to signify that a hard right, more racialized politics on the part of the CDU is is vote winning, at least you know at the level of German vote winning. In other words, like it's less than a third of the vote, but it's twenty eight percent, and it's a ten point shift. And in the wake of this of this scandalous, you know, New Year rioting crisis, and the big, big worry in the background of all of this is longer term: how does German politics function and continue to isolate the AfD, the far right party, which in the east is, you know, in Thuringia is bidding to maybe be the leading party in the in the regional parliament there. And could we see creeping over time a shift on the part of the CDU into the space where a coalition with the AFD would be conceivable? And that would be, as it were, the nightmare that's the, that happened in Austria, this sort of right-wing shift, it's happened in Italy, obviously, of the mainstream conservative parties into a space where a coalition with the AFD con- is, is conceivable. That Now, nothing of the sort is happening in Berlin right now, even though the CDU scored this great breakthrough to form a government if they're not going to go with the AFD. Instead, what's emerged in Berlin over the last week or so is that the SPD has opted to move instead into the Große Koalition, the grand coalition of CDU and SPD, which sustained Angela Merkel's um, uh, last two governments. And so that's where we've ended up. But that's why this is concerning, and specifically the unscrupulous way, really, in which the CDU chose to exploit that New Year's rioting for yeah, the purposes of polarization, in a sense. Yeah, that is certainly true. It did not cost them votes, which came, I think, as a surprise to many residents of the city. But uh, otherwise, I would also just say that uh, yeah, New Year's is something of a, of a war zone here in Berlin. So uh, I tend to avoid it. But uh, maybe other visitors would be uh, interested in the the festivities if uh, you're planning. On I mean, it's really fun. It is crazy if you if you're I, not. Screaming, it's fun it's once or twice, but firing past your ears. I mean, it's like nothing I've experienced anywhere else in Western Europe. Um, For such a disciplined country, yeah, it's, it's like it's, one of these. It's it, there are these occasions when Germans yeah, yeah. just let themselves go, and New Year's where, where they shoot fireworks at each other and into apartments. I've seen fireworks go into into yeah. windows. Yeah. It's crazy, and then they go back to being Germans uh, the next day, into or straight laced Germany the next day. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so you might want to put that on your calendars. But we'll also let you all know when we'll be in Berlin later this year to do a, a live show to put that in your calendars as well. But we uh, have to end here for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.
Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.